Good morning. First case this morning is Slattery versus EpiCity LLC et al. We'll hear from the appellant. Good morning, Justices. May it please the court, I'm Reggie Gillespie. I'm privileged to represent Daisy Barber in this case. The central issue before this court for determination is should a court set aside a default judgment taken against a defendant who was never served because the process was directed to a non-existent address? We respectfully and emphatically submit the answer to this question is yes, the court should set aside that default judgment. In part because this court said in the Grimsley versus Nelson case that rule four, quote, is to be strictly enforced to ensure that a defendant will receive actual notice of a claim against him. Your honors, if time allows, I wish to make three arguments today. First, I will argue that the trial court correctly found that plaintiff failed to demonstrate service. This finding is supported by competent evidence. Second, I will argue that having correctly found that plaintiff failed to demonstrate service, the trial court erred by failing to set aside the judgment pursuant to rule 60B4. And third, again, time permitting, even if the court did not err when it failed to set aside the judgment as void pursuant to rule 60B4, the trial court's failure to address other grounds for relief pursuant to rule 60B6 was erroneous. Turning to my first argument, we respectfully submit that the trial court correctly found that plaintiff failed to demonstrate service. In the Lumbee River Electric Membership Corporation case, this court said that, quote, the findings of fact made by the trial judge are conclusive on appeal if supported by competent evidence, even if, arguendo, there is evidence to the contrary. Other decisions of this court cited in the briefing state that all that is required is any competent evidence. We respectfully submit that there is substantial competent evidence to support the trial court's finding. Starting with the affidavits that were filed in this case, we'll start with Daisy Barber's affidavit. Her affidavit establishes that she did not receive the FedEx package when it was allegedly delivered on February 19th of 2020. In the key parts of her affidavit that appear at pages 299 to 301 of the record, she states that she never received a FedEx package with documents relating to this case. She's never picked up a FedEx package at Walgreens. She's never authorized anyone to pick up a FedEx package for her at Walgreens or anywhere else. The handwriting on the delivery receipt is not hers. The handwriting doesn't match handwriting examples that are reproduced in her cross appellee's brief at pages 15 through 16. As a matter of fact, most of these handwriting samples are before the time when this case was even filed. Now, because Ms. Barber wasn't served, she had no knowledge of the case until the Sheriff's Office delivered notice of right to claim exemptions on June 4 of 2021, the judgment having been entered against her in March of 2021. In addition, we have Mike Fenner's affidavit, Mike Fenner, her live-in companion. Mr. Fenner's affidavit confirms that Ms. Barber did not receive the FedEx package. The key parts of his affidavit can be found at pages 641 to 644 of the record. He was with Daisy Barber all day on February 18 and 19 as he was living with her. He doesn't, she doesn't drive, and as part of her, as being her live-in companion, he drove for her. He accompanied her on medical appointments, personal and household errands, and trips out of their home. In fact, on that, on those days, 
February 18th and 19th of 2020. No one attempted delivery uh, to, to Ms. Barber, to their apartment. There was no knock on the door. There was no notice left, no door hanger, no notice posted on the door of any attempt to deliver. He also says in his affidavit that he did not take her to the Walgreens on February 18th or 19th. He didn't pick up a FedEx package at the Walgreens. The handwriting on the purported delivery confirmation is not hers or his, for that matter. And he says that she was surprised and upset when the sheriff's office delivered the notice to claim exemptions on June 4 of 2021. She had never said anything to him before about being involved in a lawsuit. And because of his relationship with her, that is, as her living companion, taking care of her, helping her perform financial transactions, he says she would have told him or he otherwise would have known if she was aware that the case had been filed before she received the notice to claim exemptions on June 4 of 2021. Now, in addition to these two affidavits, directly and unequivocally stating that Ms. Barber did not receive process, there's other substantial evidence in the, in the record that support the trial court's finding. First among these is the fact that the process was transmitted to a non-existent address. There is no Mills Road in Aberdeen, but that's where the process was directed. And the package containing process was dispatched on February 17 of 2020, a Monday, for overnight delivery. That is the next day, February 18th of 2020. But the package wasn't delivered on February 18th of 2020. We don't have any tracking information, any information on the progress, the route, the location of this package at any time during its travel. Uh, there is uh, no information regarding if or when delivery was attempted on February 18 or 19 of 2020. Uh, we don't have any information uh, where it was when it was allegedly delivered on February 19th. We have no information regarding if or when the package was diverted to Walgreens. Now, if we compare the dearth of evidence in this case regarding delivery to what we see in other cases regarding FedEx, we can see there's a stark, stark contrast with that. We have produced in the record uh, tracking information from another case that's reported in our courts. It's the Hamilton versus Johnson case. And at page 848 of the record, we see detailed tracking information that was uh, available in that case. And this tracking information contains 11 entries showing the date and time of the package's progress from when it was dispatched until when it was delivered. Uh, 11 steps showing receipt by FedEx, dispatch by FedEx, waiting in FedEx location. 11 entries, date and time, from when July 13, 2011, when the package was dispatched, to July 16, 2011, when the package was delivered. But we have no such information in this case. But what we do have, or what we also don't have is, is we have no information regarding if or when the package was received by Walgreens. We do have this, though. Walgreens produced materials relating to its procedures for FedEx packages. Those materials produced by Walgreens show a very strict inventory control procedure. Uh, those materials, in the relevant parts of those materials, appear at pages 819, 831, 835 to 837, 844, and 846 of the record. Now, highlights from these, uh, these uh, procedures include the following. First of all, incoming packages to Walgreens must be scanned in, quote, immediately. 
and you can see that at page 836 of the record. In addition, packages must be scanned out when a recipient picks a package up. And we submit most importantly, a daily inventory must be maintained, quote, once per day, seven days a week, to maintain a record of packages at your location. That's at page 840 of the record. As a matter of fact, uh, the procedures require that every package in the inventory be scanned every day. Now, despite these strict procedures, we have no inventory records. We have nothing from Walgreens to indicate it ever received the package. We have no record that Walgreens scanned the inventory, scanned the package into its inventory. We have no record that Walgreens scanned the package out of its inventory. And we have no video footage uh, from this day, from the time. And again, according to the FedEx information, we know exactly when, the date and time, when this package was allegedly delivered. But we have no video footage from that. Simply stated, in this case, there's no chain of custody showing the progress of this package from when it was dispatched from the plaintiff's former counsel's office on February 17th to FedEx, to Walgreens, or to the recipient if it was ever delivered. We do know that FedEx and other carriers had a history of problems in the very same neighborhood, in the very same apartment community where Ms. Barber and Mr. Fenner lived. And lastly, we know from the Colorado Bankers Life Insurance case, uh, Fed, uh, Eastern District case, uh, that FedEx drivers were signing packages themselves during the COVID-19 time. So we have all this substantial evidence, and we respectfully submit that this evidence constitutes substantial, confident evidence that supports the trial court's finding that the plaintiff had failed to demonstrate service on Ms. Barber. Having correctly found that the plaintiff failed to demonstrate service, I'll move into my second argument. That argument is that the trial court erred by failing to set the judgment aside as void pursuant to Rule 60B-4. In this case, the trial court chose and applied Fawcett versus Dickerson, a court of appeals case, to conclude that Ms. Barber made a general appearance which waived the defect in service. We respectfully submit that determining the applicable precedent is a conclusion of law and is subject to de novo review by this court. The De Silva case dealing with uh, rules of evidence relating to expert witnesses, the State versus Biber case, and other cases cited in our briefing confirm this. These cases also note that, that an error or misapplication of law is an abuse of discretion uh, that is subject to correction on appeal. We respectfully submit that in its exercise of de novo review, this court should decline to apply the Fawcett versus Dickerson case to the facts of this case. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, we respectfully submit that Fawcett versus Dickerson is just plain wrong. It effectively abrogates this court's decision in the Grimsley versus Nelson case that I mentioned at the beginning in which Grimsley, this court said that rule four must be strictly enforced to ensure that a defendant has actual notice of a claim against her or him. In addition, Fawcett revived a void judgment contrary to cases of this court, including the Simmons versus Defiance box company case. In that case, the defendant's foreman at a mill was served. The defendant didn't answer. A default was taken. Uh, but because the foreman was not a company officer, this court held that service was invalid. 
But the court went on to say, this court went on to say that, quote, where the summons was not served on defendant and he did not enter an appearance nor have any knowledge of the action until after default judgment, the judgment is void and will be set aside on motion. Can I just ask you one yes, question Your Honor. about Fawcett? Um, if, if we agree that um, it was a, a, an error for that court to say that filing a motion to claim exempt property is a general appearance, if we agree that that's wrong, is it fair for us to apply that retroactively? And by that I mean, you know, Fawcett is pretty much all square on the facts with this case, and so it was and our court hadn't spoken on this issue, not directly on whether a motion to claim exempt property is a general appearance. We haven't ruled on that. Is it, is it fair for us to sort of retroactively apply that? Well, Your Honor, I would offer a couple of arguments for that. First of all, uh, as, as I'll continue to argue here, there are good reasons not to apply Fawcett. Um, I do understand Your Honor is basically asking a starry decisive question. Uh, and that we, that, and one of the principles of stare decisis is litigants need to, re, need to be able to rely on the status of the law uh, and, and decisions that have been issued by a court. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't have a good answer to that, but simply because it's wrong, uh, simply because it's wrong doesn't preclude, in this case and in particular, uh, what we submit is a miscarriage of justice to allow a $2 million judgment to be entered without any sort of appearance defense whatsoever. Uh, I would also submit that um, the other reason not to apply Fawcett, and we'll come to this, is that it conflicts with the principle that a void judgment cannot be revived. And that principle predates Fawcett. It predates a lot of cases. Uh, it is, um, in fact, it goes back to before the Monroe versus Niven case, which was in the 19... Monroe versus Niven was decided in 1942. Can I so, ask you a question about that? So yes. suppose, right here, so suppose um, that a party who didn't get notice of uh, the case, never knew about it, uh, there's a final judgment entered, then finds out about it, and the approach that that party takes to say this, this is a completely meritless lawsuit, so files a Rule 60B motion, makes some Rule 60b-6 argument, and the trial court reopens the proceeding, and then there's some more argument, and, but that party eventually loses, and the court says, no, you know, we're not gonna have a new trial, that sort of thing. So your position is that party could then come back and say, well, actually, let me make another Rule 60 motion. There was never any jurisdiction all in any of this stuff, and so just wipe it all away. And, I mean, what, because the principle that you're arguing, that once you get to the judgment, if it's void, it can never, you can never waive that, seems inconsistent with the hypothetical I just gave you. So how do you deal with that? So in that case, uh, a party challenges a void judgment pursuant to other provisions for relief other than the void judgment provision in 60b-4. Um, I would say that um, the court's ruling on the 60b-6, uh, the court's proceeding on the 60b-6 uh, is a nullity. 
and the case law that, we, that, that we've cited in our, our brief deals with that. Nothing can come out of nothing. There's a great Latin phrase that I can't pronounce, so it's not in my notes, and I'm not going to try. In one of these cases, uh, I believe it's, again, the city of Monroe versus Niven case, or maybe it's the Cole versus Cole case, which basically says, out of nothing can from nothing. Uh, but that's an interesting scenario. And see, I think the, the better argument you could make, which is the argument that's been made in the other states that have rejected like a fossil line of reasoning, is that it is a waiver of the jurisdictional argument, but only prospectively. So there can be no retroactive waiver of that uh, lack of personal jurisdiction, but going forward, of course, so anything else that happens at that point, you can't say, well, you know, I never got service. And, um, but the problem is there's also, I, I tried to look, and it, it seems to be about 50-50 other states. There are many, many, and there's wall review articles that have been written on this. And um, so what I'm struggling with, I think what the court is gonna struggle with is we're not bound by any of the court of appeals cases, and they have very little reasoning in them of why they chose a particular approach. So what we're going to need to decide is which approach is the reasoned one that we should make the law in our state. So what I'm most interested in are what are the consequences of adopting the Fawcett rule versus adopting the kind of rule that you'd like to have going forward and litigants in the state and that sort of thing. Well, I will say this. Uh, Ms. Barber having filed a rule 60 before 60 v. 6 motion has now made a general appearance. And while this judgment from March of 2021 is void, the complaint is still alive. The complaint, if this court rules in Ms. Barber's favor, will have to be answered. It's simply the fact that this judgment that was taken, absent service, absent appearance, has been wiped out. It's been vacated. It's been set aside because it is a nullity. That's the approach I would so argue to the court. What have. about the argument that one of the arguments in support of the Fawcett rule is that uh, we want litigants that have jurisdictional arguments to do one of two things. One is appear and make that argument and rest on that or wait in whatever other jurisdiction they're in or wherever they are and plan to make defend against the judgment there and know that you know, whatever is in the forum state that can be reached by that judgment, I'm not going to have any, I can't do anything about that. And pick one of those two. And that if you choose to do anything else, for example, try to resist the enforcement of the judgment, which is one thing that, you know, you could argue is, happens when you file a motion claiming exempt property, that you're getting, you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. And that you shouldn't be able to do that. You should be able to come to court and make, say one thing, which is there's no jurisdiction on any of this or you have to just sit back, accept the consequences of that judgment, but argue elsewhere it can't be enforced. Well, so what's the response you have to that? In this case, Ms. Barber has made that jurisdictional argument. She made it in support of her Rule 60b-4 motion. She's also made it as extraordinary circumstances in her Rule 60b-6 motion. So this, this is her first response to the complaint in this case, following a void judgment. With regard to in, uh, the application of other courts, of course, that's not going to happen with Ms. Barber as a North Carolina resident. If it were another resident, as I understand the law, uh, if, if I'm defending a client in this state based on a judgment in another state, and if he wasn't served, I have due process arguments I can make. And among the cases that are cited here deal with the fact that the, the lack of service is a due process issue. And so a judgment is subject to attack, as I understand it, in another jurisdiction, 
if that judgment uh, is rendered in violation of due process. So I would say that with regard to that scenario, in this case or any case in, in, the, in the forum state, the next action must be a challenge to the jurisdiction, which but, has happened here. So um, I, I want to get to that last thing you're saying, because I think though that is the exact scenario that's the policy concern, which is you could just not show up, say I, there's no personal jurisdiction, and what we want you to do in that circumstance is make the limited appearance in that forum and have that court system litigate whether or not they have jurisdiction over you. And you can choose, though, to take the risk and just say, I'll wait in my home state. And when you come to me, I'm going to argue you don't have to give full faith, you know, faith and credit to this judgment because uh, there was no personal jurisdiction over me. And as you said, it's a constitutional violation, and therefore you don't have to enforce this judgment. But the argument is if you choose that approach, you can't also say, oh, and by the way, in the forum state, um, you can't collect everything. You want. I got property there, but you can't get it because there, I want to invoke the laws of that state to say, you know, you can't take my home, you can't take that. And that's the part that doesn't fit together. And so I'm trying to understand here how we can avoid that, you know, encourage litigants to do one of two things, either just accept that you're not going to fight the judgment at all in our state and you'll just wait for, or say, I'm coming here to North Carolina and the only thing I will do first is say, no jurisdiction, deal with that, um, and then, you know, go from there. Well, if, if I am a Texas resident, for example, uh, and I've been subjected to a judgment here in North Carolina, and let's say I have a beach house in Duck, uh, and let's say the sheriff is out there trying to foreclose on my beach house, then I've got a choice. At that point, I have to stop execution, or, at, or I challenge it in, the, uh, in, the, um, uh, I challenge it in Texas. I believe, though, that there is also a proceeding, I may be mistaken, in which I can file an action in North Carolina as the Texas resident to enjoin, to prevent the execution process. I don't know that to be the case, uh, but that is a, a dilemma that I haven't considered, quite frankly, uh, in part because it doesn't apply in this case. Um, I want to also point out that, that, and we've touched on this, that Fawcett conflicts with the principle uh, that a void judgment cannot be revived. And this is from cases in this court. It's the TRP case and the Hart versus Thomasville Motors case. And as I've stated, a void judgment is legal effect, no judgment. And the right, no rights are acquired or divested by a void judgment. And I, I guess in partial response, your answer is I would have to take some action here in North Carolina again, to say that my rights cannot be divested by this void judgment that was rendered when I wasn't served in violation of my due process rights. I think that's what I've got to do, and I think that issue, if you gets joined, when the execution process proceeds. But my first line of attack, I submit, is can and should be attacking the void judgment, especially when I'm a resident of North Carolina and when the case is here in North Carolina. Um, isn't that the problem here? that there was a general appearance uh, to uh, claim exemptions as opposed to immediately um, stepping forward and saying, uh, I want to contest personal jurisdiction. I mean, I'm, I don't know that the issue would be here if that had occurred. Well, that certainly is the problem that motivated, I would submit, the Fawcett Court <clears throat> to rule as it did, although that was not an issue that was ever presented to the Fawcett Court. It wasn't briefed, 
It wasn't. In fact, this, I believe, is the first time a court has had an opportunity to delve into these specific issues as to a void judgment and a uh, post-judgment action uh, as to whether that can breathe new life into that void judgment. And I uh, respectfully submit that our case law uh, doesn't allow this judgment to be revived. Uh, in fact, uh, if you take the Sink versus, Sink versus Easter case of this court, 1974 case, that's the first Sink case. In that case, this court ultimately stated that although the action had been discontinued for want of service, in that case, after the discontinuance, the defendant stipulated that he had been served with by publication. And this court said that that stipulation cannot revive a void judgment. And again, what we have here is a void judgment. And going back to what this court said is, out of nothing comes from nothing. And we respectfully submit that the uh, motion to claim exemptions or any other action uh, based on a void judgment, based on the cases of this court, uh, cannot be sustained. The last argument I wish to make, and I apologize, Your Honor, at the outset I failed to um, uh, ask to reserve uh, rebuttal time. Uh, may I please reserve four minutes for rebuttal time? Um, the last argument I'd like to make, and I'll make very in an abbreviated fashion, is that even if the court did not err when it failed to set aside the judgment as void, its failure to address the 60B6 grounds for relief was erroneous. And the facts in support of this are, first and foremost, Ms. Barber was never served. In addition, the record shows that Ms. Barber did not get notice of the summary judgment hearing that was conducted on November 17th. Long after that uh, hearing was conducted uh, and decision rendered against her, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, notice of hearing, which the trial court directed to be served by certified mail, was, reserved, was returned as undelivered. So she had never had notice of that summary judgment hearing. Um, in that case, this court said that when a party has an interest in a proceeding, that party should get notice, and the lack of notice clearly justifies relief under Rule 60b-6. We have other arguments based on Rule 60b-6, including the inadmissible hearsay uh, that was used to support the judgment. Uh, we will rely on our briefing on that, and I will sit down reserving my remaining time for rebuttal. I thank the court for its attention and questions. We ask that the court reverse the trial court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning. May it please the court, I am Aaron Lay with my associate Graham Morgan. We represent the appellee and cross-appellant, Mr. John Slattery. Your Honors, we ask the court to affirm the trial court's decision, which reaffirmed our long-held right-line rule in both our civil procedure, including Rule 12H, and our case law, that if a defendant fails to challenge personal jurisdiction on the basis of insufficiency of service of process or otherwise, in its first act of a general appearance, then the defense is waived. And every case cited, as we will discuss, upholds that, and they are consistent. The, the so, trial, the, the, I'm sorry. The, the, the trial court in uh, paragraph 24 of its order 
um, found that the plaintiff had failed to adequately demonstrate that defendant Barber had been served. So if we accept that finding, um, was the uh, summary judgment order void when it was entered? No, Your Honor, because that defense was waived and the, the judgment itself. I'm not asking you about a waiver of the defense. I'm asking you uh, if there was, would you agree that if there was not proper service, there was no personal jurisdiction at the time the order was entered? At the time the order was entered, if there's no service of process, that is a defect that can be challenged. However, because the defense was waived, you cannot challenge the judgment in its stance, so it's not void at that point. It's not, it doesn't have to be resurrected because that defense has been waived, and the court, sua sponte, is not going to bring that defense itself. That defense is a right of the defendant and the defendant voluntarily waived that defense in any challenge to personal jurisdiction or that judgment based on personal jurisdiction So is your, it seems like there's a chronological problem. Um, so is your argument essentially, well, it doesn't matter if it was void? My argument is the judgment was not void at that time. How, how is it not void when it was entered if there was not service, if there was not personal jurisdiction? Well, we would submit that there was personal jurisdiction and service, and we have briefed that thoroughly. However, it's just like Rule 4 requires service. Well, Rule 12H says if you don't bring it up, then you waive that defect. It's the same post-judgment. And the reason is we have to have that bright line rule, or otherwise we're going to cause chaos. As Justice Deeds pointed out, is you could evade service process, you can sit on it, and then suddenly bring up personal jurisdiction at the appellate level in another state, and we have tried these cases. It, it, while, while harsh, it is no different than failing to respond to requests for admissions and having those admissions uh, held against you. I, I'm just trying to understand if your argument is that the order is not void, or is your argument that it doesn't matter if the order is void, the plaintiff or excuse me, the defendant has waived the opportunity to challenge. That's correct. It does not matter because the, there has been a waiver of that opportunity to challenge because the Cole versus Cole case cited, which uses that, that language, it's void because a nullity is a nullity. What Cole versus Cole actually did was said, defendant did not waive his objections to the judgment because a general appearance to move to vacate the void judgment does not validate a judgment rendered without service of process. In that case, just like every other case cited, the first act was to move to vacate the judgment and challenge it on personal jurisdiction grounds. And so whether or not there was personal jurisdiction or not, once they waived their ability to challenge it, it cannot even come before the court. Yeah, I, I saw a, a scholar that was talking about other states' cases on this issue pointed out that well, one of the reasons the older cases seem to be really confusing is that many times the judges conflated subject matter jurisdiction principles with personal jurisdiction principles. What I hear you saying is, you can almost think of it like in contract law, it's not a void judgment, it's a voidable one. Because if you show up and make the argument, you'll win. But if no one ever makes that personal jurisdiction argument, the judgment is valid. That's correct. Unlike subject matter jurisdiction where nothing can be done. If, it, if no subject matter jurisdiction, it will always be void and at any time anyone can point that out. And, and the, my question is, what about the, if you look in our statute, and uh, 
in the statute say the general the waiver because of general appearance is in that action and then all of our cases sort of use that same presumption it's a general appearance in the action results in the waiver um, so it seems to me one of the questions is is filing the motion to claim exempt property a filing in the action because you can only do it after the final judgment's already been entered and at that point so for example during the collections process it would be odd to say that someone would come in and say your honor by the way in addition to fighting a bunch of enforcement stuff i'd like to file a motion to reconsider a bunch of rulings that happened earlier in the case before judgment i mean that you can't do that so is it the same action or is it just collateral collection proceedings that are happening after the final judgment is entered? Well, once the judgment enters, I mean, as part of the proceeding, and what we saw in the Dowd case, which they asked you all to follow, was the first act was to file a motion for a temporary restraining order, and that was a foreclosure case. And it's important because in a foreclosure case particularly, once that home is sold at foreclosure, your actions kind of moot. I mean, you have no other remedy. But key there in Dowd was, in that TRO, they specifically say, pursuant to Rule 4, we were not served and we're contesting the judgment. That's the first act, because we, what we can't have is an execution on judgments in multiple states, all this property is executed on, money is brought in, and then a year later, someone then decides after their bank's told them their property's gone, after their car's been towed away, that they didn't have personal jurisdiction. Imagine the chaos that causes in the system when we're trying to draw back all this property from all these judgments, and that's why we have to have a bright line rule. And that is consistent in both Dowd and Barnes. Both of those defendants, their first act was to challenge the jurisdiction of the court and the judgment. They put the court on notice that they were challenging that judgment and execution should not continue. That did not happen here. Ms. Barber had that right. She waited months before she moved to set aside the judgment, during which time we were executing on this judgment and have executed on this judgment and are holding property. And during this execution, Ms. Barber continues to avoid service of interrogatories, amongst other things. And this is the problem. If we change the precedent that this court has had in both our rules of civil procedure and case law, it will be used by people like Ms. Barber to avoid judgments, to avoid executions on the judgment. On the judgment. But it, it, it seems to me based on the business court's order that we're reviewing that the, that the legal question for us here is whether or not appearance by filing a motion to claim exempt property is a general appearance in the underlying action. And, and this court hasn't ruled on that, but you, you, we ha the Court of Appeals has in the past, so I'm, I'm looking at Williams versus Williams, which was 1980, and I, I understand this is not binding on us, but um, there the court noted that, um, so there the issue was whether there was a general appearance or not, and the attorney had um, come to court and had conference with the judge and had, had made some representations um, in open court, which the Williams Court said that's enough to be a general appearance. But they also said, we note, however, that participation by defendant's counsel in a contempt proceeding would not be a general appearance. It would be a collateral matter that does not directly bear upon the subject matter of the controversy. And, and so it seems to me that if we if we allow there to be general appearances after there's been a final judgment, then that has all sorts of implications for other types of proceedings where someone might um, want representation in a collateral matter but is not making a general appearance in the underlying matter. 
Well, I think the Fauci Court actually speaks to this, and here's how it defines a general appearance for purpose of waiving the personal jurisdiction defense. It says, if a defendant by motion or otherwise invokes the adjudicatory powers of the court, asking the, pow the court to adjudicate something in any other manner not directly related to the question of jurisdiction, then they have made a general appearance. Right, so in this Williams example, uh, invoking the adjudicated power of the court to decide whether or not you're in contempt would then become a general appearance in the action. So, but if you're doing it in order to be able to contest or challenge the judgment, so, and that's what the court in Fountas said with this defendant, at all time, when she filed the motion to claim exemptions, she acted inconsistent with challenging the judgment. In that case, I would say that that is consistent with challenging the judgment. If you're, you're addressing the contempt, that's going to be part of your ability to challenge that judgment. Uh, and this, the general appearance, this rule only relates to the personal jurisdiction defense waiver. And that's what we're speaking to in, here and what the Fauci, the Barnes, and the Dowd courts were all speaking to was the waiver by making the general appearance and not asserting then when you make that general appearance that you're challenging the jurisdiction, the personal jurisdiction of the court and or the judgment itself. But why wouldn't the dividing line be if there is a final judgment, then other, other actions you might take uh, to, um, relating to collection of the judgment is, is collateral to the, to, the, to the proceeding in which there is now a final judgment? For the very reasons we've explained, because we have to have that bright line rule that you have to challenge the judgment in the jurisdiction from the outset, or you're going to create a ton of problems. It's the reason we have 12, Rule 12H. And this rule just follows 12H except post-judgment. Um, and it's because the courts have de developed that bright line rule so that we don't cause chaos in the execution and in the appellate process because defendants sit on their right to assert the personal jurisdiction defense until they're willing and ready to do so. Same reason we don't allow forum shopping and different things. It's because you can't just assert a right at will. You must assert that right in the beginning or you have voluntarily waived it. The court's not taking the right from them. They themselves have voluntarily waived that defense by not raising it. If it's not raised, it's waived. So let's, let's pursue that a little bit. Uh, Let's say that there was significant ongoing litigation for months with regard to exempt property. Uh, if uh, we say that a general appearance in the collections aspect is not a part of the uh, action itself, when, when would the timing for having to raise personal, lack of personal jurisdiction occur. Uh, it would seem to me that there could be uh, months, years, even appellate decisions with regard to the collateral collections action, and then years later, if the outcome was not as a party hoped, they could raise personal jurisdiction. Am I missing something with that? No, Your Honor, that, that is my point is it would be open-ended. And that's hence the bright line rule. It cannot be open-ended or at any time they decide they want to challenge it, they could. 
And that would then render the judgment void. Years after, after execution's done, after the court's orders are carried out, it will undo the court's orders years later. And we just, that would upend and cause chaos in our judicial system, uh, particularly in terms of judgment execution, if we allowed that to happen. And that's why in every one of the cases cited that discussed the void judgment, in every one of those, the first act was to challenge that judgment itself and the jurisdiction of the court. So it's clear that defendants know to do this. Lawyers know to do this. If we change that precedent now, you're going to create the exact situation you just discussed, Your Honor. Of course, there's no, uh, no chaos if the defendant's properly served. That's correct. So that is the, a way to avoid that problem. It is, and they should be properly served. And if the court wants, I can address the service issue. However, I think the key issue here, and, I, and recognized by the questions, is whether or not there was a waiver of that, and does that allow the judgment to continue, whether it was originally void or not? Uh, and we submit that it would. However, the record does show um, that Ms. Barber, we believe, was served, and there's sufficient facts there um, to show that there was service. Uh, including the fact that Rule 4G or 4J, and we've we focused on that. It says what it says though is it has to be served on the address C. It doesn't say the address. That's a red herring. The rule in all the case law is the issue is whether the person received it or not. It doesn't matter whether there was technical issues. There wasn't tracking information, which is not required. It's whether they received it. And what we submitted was an affidavit including the signature on the FedEx pad, and it's electronic pad, as you all know, uh, says DB, and FedEx states it was accepted by D. Barber. I think the trial court erred there. However, the trial court did, did not even need to reach that because they found the waiver of the defense, but it did not even have to consider that. And further, with regard to the 60B6... Well, part, before you get oh, I'm there, sorry. are there other, I mean... What, what errors did the trial court make in its findings of fact with regard to the service issue? With regards to the service issue in particular, it erred in, we, we say it erred in even considering the issue after finding the defense had been affirmatively weighed by motion. However, even if you find that Barber didn't raise her, or Ms. Barber didn't waive her defenses, we rose, we, brought the presumption of valid service, and they did not overcome it. Um, the case law we cited um, discusses the affidavits and that it's required um, to have two to three affidavits in the case law, that's Gibby v. Lindsay, that you must rebut the presumption by clear and unequivocal evidence with more than one contradictory affidavit. Here, the evidence was not clear and unequivocal as we've discussed. And as I said, 4J1 only required delivery to that S street. All this other stuff about FedEx policies and such doesn't matter. What we showed is she received it. It was signed by DB. FedEx says it was D Barber who they gave it to at the Walgreens location. And this is no different. And, and often today, 
people get to choose where they have their deliveries made, even if they're an address. You see in her affidavit that there were packages being stolen at the apartments or gone missing. So it follows that she would have it delivered to the Walgreens. The Walgreens that her bank records show she visited on a weekly basis, almost on a daily basis at times. Um, so it follows that FedEx said they gave it to D. Barber. Their policies required an ID to even give the package to them, and they would have done that, and that's what the Walgreens affidavit said, is that they require the affidavit or ID before giving it to them. So you've got the signatures of Barber, even if she says the signatures don't match, I mean, we've shown in the briefing that a lot of her signatures don't match. She's so, saying that she... But she, she submitted two affidavits, hers and her living partner, saying, that's not my signature, I wasn't, I'm the addressee, but I did not pick it up. And the trial court heard all of these arguments and said, plaintiff didn't prove, um, prove service. So... As an appellate court, I think I'm still struggling to understand the error is just that in weighing these affidavits that I, I don't think there's an allegation that they're not competent, that the trial court just read these affidavits wrong and disagreed with us, and that's the error? Uh, we're simply saying they, they did not overcome the burden because there was presumption that service was valid. And the affidavits, one being self-serving affidavit of Ms. Barber, the other actually doesn't say she never received it. He just wasn't aware that she received it. He was with, but he, the, the affidavit said he was with her all day. The trial court seemed to credit that. It feels like you're asking us to dive into the semantics yeah. that the trial court made factual findings. I'm actually not asking you to do that. I'm only addressing because it has been brought up, so we're rebutting those particular issues. The trial court need not have gotten there this court need not, not go there because there was a waiver of that defense. It doesn't matter. And there wasn't a full discovery on that defense. Um, you know, we didn't get to do depositions on it, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day because the defense was waived and it can't challenge the joy, judgment, whether void or not void. There can't be a challenge before the court at that point. And that's where we rest on that issue. Um, if we're getting into that, then, then we have to have a whole hearing and discovery on that issue. Uh, which we haven't had. But, but it is true that if the trial court had found the opposite in, based on the facts, that is to say if the, if the trial court had found that you had served her, then, the, then they wouldn't have had to reach the waiver issue, right? No, and we wouldn't be here today. Right. So, so there's some logic to the trial court first sure. trying to figure out the facts. And they made the findings a fact for that reason so that this court, if it determines that the, there wasn't a waiver uh, or that wasn't a general appearance, then they can rest on those findings of fact that there was service, and then it goes back to the trial court, and we go from there. Um, if I may, any other questions with regards to that particular issue? With regard to 60B6, Ms. Berber is really trying to back backdoor her defense here. Having waived her defense, voluntarily waived her defense as personal jurisdiction and the insufficient service of process and failing to challenge personal jurisdiction in her first act by filing a motion to claim exempt property. She now seeks under the court's broad equitable power under Rule 60B6 to vacate the judgment. However, and that is to be reviewed based on abuse of discretion as we set forth in our brief um, as stated in McIver versus McIver, 
When reviewing a trial court's equitable discretion under Rule 60b-6, our Supreme Court has indicated that this court cannot substitute what it considers it to be its own better judgment for discretionary ruling of a trial court, and that this court should not disturb a discretionary ruling unless it probably amounted to a substantial miscarriage of justice, and a substantial miscarriage of justice has not been shown here. How can we say the trial court exercised its discretion in denying the, the, the 60B motion when the order concludes with a statement that by the trial court that it was not reaching the merits of that motion? Well, no, Counsel for Barber did not request findings of fact on that issue, and it has to be requested. Even if it wasn't requested, what this court would, would have to do, as cited by Paris versus Light, is find that the record was completely devoid of any fact that could support the trial court's decision. And there are an abundance of facts in the record that support the trial court's decision that this is not a miscarriage of justice. With regards to the size of the judgment itself, it's $2 million, 500,000 of which was stolen from my client. Three, excuse me, 150,000, I'm sorry, uh, 1.5 million being the punitive damages from the 500,000. Uh, so that Ms. Barber and her co-conspirators would not repeat this behavior. But the facts in the record were established both by the entry of default, because the allegations are then admitted, and the affidavits. The court, in its order, noted the correct standard for granting the 60B6, which was an abuse of discretion. And so it considered it at that point. The court also noted the correct factors to consider for granting a 60B6 motion. It considered those. It simply didn't find, do findings of fact. In the hearing held on the motion, Ms. Barber presented all of her arguments that she now presents, including a new one, which is the notice of hearing for the summary judgment, which is not required once entry of default is issued and shouldn't be an issue here. It's simply a red herring. Um, with regards to the size of the judgment, Ms. Barber claimed her exempt property, including her Social Security. She's protected. Her primary income is from her Social Security. This is not going to be devastating for her. Matter of fact, we'll probably not collect any more than we already have at this point. She's not the only party to this judgment. There are four other parties, including her son and daughter-in-law, who are the primary co-conspirators here, uh, who she can certainly rely on to assist in paying this judgment, and should. And we must weigh this against the considerations that my client has been substantially harmed. $500,000 stolen from him is a large sum of money. Now, what they want to argue is, is her illness and such that she couldn't drive. It's interesting that she had a driver's license that she just had recently renewed and that she had her car work done. So that calls into question the other affidavit. Um, but the fact is, she, she says she has dementia, which would say she doesn't even remember the issues, but she signs an affidavit saying she's competent as to make that affidavit. So there's not competency issues here, according to Ms. Barber herself. With regards to the hearsay exception, one, the allegations weren't framed in a, in a manner of hearsay, and even if they were, it's admissible because of the co-conspiracy, and the conspiracy was continuing even after because they're working to hide the money. So that would be admissible, as we've discussed in our brief. 
So if you look at the totality of the record, there is sufficient evidence to support the trial court's decision, even if they did not make their own findings of fact on that issue, because the trial court recognized they couldn't consider the fact that they're of, of personal jurisdiction and service. That had been waived, even as to the 60B6. So all these arguments were considered by the trial court, and they didn't consider it to be a meritorious defense. And so you would have to find that they abused their discretion and couldn't rely on any of the facts I just discussed and more of the facts that we put forth in our brief. And so we ask that based on that, you affirm the trial court's decision to deny the Rule 60B6 motion and affirm the trial court's decision finding that she waived her defenses as to personal jurisdiction and therefore could not challenge the judgment in any manner based on personal jurisdiction and lack of sufficient sufficiency of service process. And I thank the court for the time. Unless there's any other questions, I shall rest. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. Um, with regard to the question from the bench regarding the void judgment doctrine, uh, the void judgment doctrine is not limited to cases in which there's a subject matter defect. The um, City of Monroe versus Niven case from 1942 that I mentioned earlier, uh, it involved a judgment for want of service of process, and it's the case that says the general appearance to move to vacate a void judgment does not validate a judgment rendered without service of process. A nullity is a nullity and out of nothing, nothing comes. And I, should, should we be using cases that arose under code pleading to decide cases now that arise under the rules of civil procedure? Yes, Your Honor, I respectfully submit that we should in this sense is the concept is the same. We have a defect in service. We have service wasn't accomplished. We have a void judgment. And post-rule cases likewise hold that uh, uh, a judgment rendered in the absence of service is a void judgment. So it's the same concept. I simply want to point out that the concept of a void judgment can't be revived, uh, is not limited to subject matter jurisdiction cases. And the concept of a void judgment survives, if you will, the enactment of the rules of civil procedure. With regard to the question about the presumption. So just, I'm sorry to take you down this path, but just yes, sir. because I think it will be an, an issue for this court. So suppose though that um, you had a case like this and later some third party that's somehow impacted by the decision comes to court and says, you need to set aside this judgment, it's void. How would that work? Because you know, the, the concept of personal jurisdiction is that it's personal. You assert it or you waive it. And so I'm just wondering if what's happened is that older cases just were doing what I think happened in other states, which is we were a little bit looser about the word jurisdiction now, in modern times, it has, you know, with a very clear separation between things that are subject matter jurisdiction, things that are waivable personal jurisdiction, it's hard to fit the, that nullity language with our modern understanding of it. Well, our modern understanding can also be informed by the Dowd versus Johnson case, the Barnes case, and the Cole versus Cole case. Cole versus Cole case said that actions by the court, subsequent actions by the court, cannot revive the judgment. So I would submit that the concept survives the enactment of the rules, and it is a, if you will, modern day concept. Um, with regard to the 60B6 grounds for relief, 
This court in Howell versus Howell, which did not involve a service issue, granted Rule 60b-6 relief. Rule 60b-6 relief survives a waiver of service. And in fact, the court said that the, the rule empowers the court to set aside or modify a final judgment, order, or proceeding whenever such action is necessary to do justice under the circumstances. In this case, and our brief outlines the fact that this is not a co-conspirator exception to the hearsay rule because there's no independent evidence of the conspiracy. The conspiracy had concluded. The lawsuit was filed. The alleged conspiracy was that the funds had been converted into cryptocurrency. That had occurred. That occurred before the lawsuit was filed because it was a basis of the lawsuit. So the hearsay exception for co-conspiracy, co-conspirator uh, co declarations would not apply here. We respectfully request that this court reverse the business court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.